0: The enemy of the artist is the small-time ego, which begets resistance, which is the dragon that guards the gold. That's why an artist must be a warrior, and, like all warriors, artists over time acquire modesty and humility. They may, some of them, conduct themselves flamboyantly in public, but alone, with the work, they are chaste and humble. They know they are not the source of the creations they bring into being. They only facilitate, they carry. They are the willing and skilled instruments of the gods and goddesses they serve. to so-called discoveries where we discuss stories, knowledge, and insights from somewhere and try to learn something. My name is Anthony Ozzie. That opening passage was from The War of Art, Break Through the Blocks and Win Your Inner Creative Battles. This is the third and final part of our discussion on The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. If you have not listened to episodes four and five, it is recommended that you start there in that order. Episode four is on book one of The War of Art. Resistance, Defining the Enemy. Episode 5 is on Book 2 of The War of Art, Combating Resistance, Turning Pro. This episode is on Book 3 of The War of Art, Beyond Resistance, The Higher Realm. In the previous two episodes, we've made references to the muse and the fact that Pressfield's writing in this book can be mystical at times. And in this episode, we're going to dive deeper into the muse And how Pressfield says we can invoke it and how we need to respect it. And we'll also talk about some other topics, one of which, again, is quite mystical and related to the muse, which is angels. And we'll also discuss the self and how the ego is a part of the self. If you have listened to the two previous episodes, you know that each of the three books of The War of Art begin with a quote. The first book began with a quote from the Dalai Lama. Book two began with a quote from Telamon, a character from Stephen Pressfield's historical fiction writing. And book three begins with a quote from Xenophon of Athens, the ancient Greek military leader. And the quote comes from the pamphlet The Cavalry Commander, which was intended for inspiring officers in the Athenian Equestrian Corps. The quote is The first duty is to sacrifice to the gods and pray them to grant you their thoughts words and deeds likely to render your command most pleasing to the gods and to bring yourself your friends and your city the fullest measure of affection and glory and advantage so right from the beginning by choosing this quote stephen pressfield is letting us know that above all else above everything the first duty is to sacrifice to the gods and pray to them to grant you the thoughts, words, and deeds that you need, which means that you fully acknowledge the non-material, non-physical, spiritual, mystical realm from which thoughts and ideas and creativity stems, and that you are not generating them yourself, but that you are receiving them. And we'll learn throughout today's episode that this is the attitude that Professional artists must adopt that invisible psychic forces support and sustain us in our journey towards ourselves. And these forces, Stephen Pressfield describes as muses or angels. And he states that if language like this makes you uncomfortable, think of angels and the muse in the abstract. Think of them not as entities and beings that exist, but Something like gravity, something more like a law of nature. And that you can view it as either personal to you or impersonal, like you would gravity. As long as it works for you and your growth. And he says, if even thinking of it that way still makes you uncomfortable, then think of it as talent programmed into your DNA, programmed into your genes through evolution. Either way, it is his firm belief that there are forces that counteract resistance, And that we have allies and angels that help us become who we were born to be. As we've said in previous episodes, when it comes to art, the most important thing is sitting down and doing the work. Every day, sitting down and trying. In which serendipity reinforces our purpose. And unseen, unexpected forces begin to work in our favor. Stephen Pressfield says, power concentrates around us when we sit down and do our work and that we become like a magnetized rod that attracts iron filings. Ideas come, insights accrete. He says that professionalism is like the artist's code, which is like the warrior's way, and that they all exemplify an attitude of egolessness and service. As we learn from Xenophon, the first duty is to sacrifice to the gods, and to ask for their help. Stephen Pressfield does the same thing with his writing. The last thing he does before he begins work is say his prayer to the muse, out loud and in absolute earnest. For him, this is literally a prayer from the muse that comes from Homer's Odyssey that he was introduced to from a friend of his when he was in his late 20s, whom, while working on his book, would visit every morning and have coffee with. And this friend was a bit of a mentor to him and he learned about many authors from him and he learned about self-discipline and dedication and prayer and the invocation of the muse, which again was from Homer's Odyssey. And he said this prayer every day before he began his work. And when he finally finished his first book, it would still be 10 more years before he would receive his first paycheck. And it would be 10 years after that before his first novel was published. When he finished his first book, no one knew, no one cared, except for him. To him, it felt like he had slayed the dragon that he had been fighting his entire life. The next day, he went to visit his friend for coffee like he did every day, and he excitedly told him that he had finished his book his friend didn't even look up. He said, Good for you. Start the next one today. Let's talk a little bit about the story of the Muse as it relates to the Greeks. The Muse is actually the Muses, they were nine sisters. And they were the daughters of the gods Zeus and Nemozin. Zeus, who you may know, is the father of all the gods. And Nemozin means memory. The muses were responsible for inspiring artists, with each of the nine sisters representing a particular art form. And they also have some pretty awesome-sounding names. They are Cleo, Erato, Talia... Terpsichore, Calliope, Polyhymnia, Euterpe, Melpomene, and Urania. Socrates said that possession by the muses inspires expression of lyrics or poetry, and that someone who is untouched by the muses' madness and relies on technique alone has sane compositions that will never reach perfection and that will be eclipsed by the performances of the inspired madman. The ancient people personified the mysterious, powerful, primordial forces of the world. The Greeks made them humanistic. The Native Americans made them animalistic. Both of them were doing this to make them more approachable. The gods are like humans, but infinitely more powerful. To defy their will is futile. To have any pride towards the heavens is to call down calamity. The Greeks believed that the universe was not indifferent and that the gods take an interest in human affairs and that they intercede. Pressfield offers a quote from William Blake that says, Eternity is in love with the creations of time. Pressfield does us the favor of breaking this down. He says he sees eternity as... A realm higher than this one. Not the literal definition of eternity in the dictionary, but some some sort of a plane of reality that is superior to the physical world that we live in. This other realm might be inhabited with other beings or creatures, or that it might be some pure consciousness or spirit. Either way, apparently it's capable of being in love, because eternity is in love with the creations of time. If it is inhabited by beings it's inhabited by beings with no bodies no physical material aspect but that those beings have a connection to our physical realm and that they participate and take an interest in it like i said and that they take joy in what us physical beings bring into existence again this is me just reiterating what stephen pressfield writes in his book that he's saying is what he firmly believes and If these beings take joy in the creations of time brought about by us physical beings, and if they have this connection to our world and can intercede, then Pressfield says, it makes sense that they might give us a nudge. And then the image of the muse whispering inspiration into the artist's ear doesn't seem so far-fetched. He gives an example by talking about Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. That's the one that goes, dun-dun-dun-dun. He says that that Or really any creative work existed in the higher realm before Beethoven ever played it that it existed as potential and that without a physical body it wasn't music yet it couldn't be played or heard it needed a physical being in the material world to bring it into this realm so in order to do that the muse would have whispered into Beethoven's ear. And maybe millions of others as well. That same tune. But no one else heard it. Only Beethoven got it. He was the one that brought it into physical existence. That creation of time for eternity to be in love with. Pressfield says that invoking the muse is effacing our human arrogance and humbly entreating help from a source that we cannot see, hear, touch, or smell. To do so is to call on forces from a different reality, a higher reality. In fact, if the Greeks are to be believed from the highest levels of reality. Again, the Muses are the daughters of Zeus, the father of the gods, and Nemozine, Memory, they're one layer removed from the top. In the prayer to the muse from Homer's Odyssey, one thing that's worth mentioning, the prayer doesn't ask for success or for any outcome in particular. What the prayer asks for is to be sustained. In other words, to pray to simply keep going, to keep steady the course. This idea of Just wanting to keep going always coming back always putting in the effort to start to put in the work every day stephen pressfield says there's magic to doing this and that once someone deliberately and definitely commits themselves the world begins to move and things begin to occur that help them on their path that otherwise would not have happened unforeseen events incidents meetings and assistance from allies and angels. He says that allies and angels work for God and their job is to help us, to wake us up and to nudge us along and that they are agents of our evolution. He says that the Kabbalah, which is a tradition of Jewish mysticism, says angels are bundles of light. And by this they mean intelligence, some sort of consciousness. And they believe that above every blade of grass, there is an angel crying out to it, saying, grow, grow. And Pressfield takes this even further, saying he believes that above the entire human race, there is a super angel crying, evolve, evolve. And that the muse shouts for our attention, but that it does it behind a pane of glass and that we can't hear through it because we are too distracted. But when we make a start, when we approach the work with earnesty and humility, a crack appears, and the muse gives us assistance, as long as we get out of our own way. Sometimes the work of the muse becomes so common we don't even notice it. For example pressfield says that after a day's work after a day's work of writing for him he'll go on a walk and in his head he begins self-revision and a self-correction process of what he wrote for that day and that this process happens essentially essentially entirely on its own he thinks about well, the sentence needs to be this or this word should be that and it becomes like i said so common that you don't notice it but he says that it's a miracle Who's the one doing this revising? He's not putting in any effort or exertion. It's just some voice that pops up in his head that gives him advice and tells him how he should be changing his writing and that it actually is right and that it makes his work better. He says we all have that voice and that it's smarter than we are. It doesn't even have to tell us what to do. It just does its work on its own it does this by giving us ideas and insights that seemingly pop into our head it's some seeming intelligence that works independent of yet in alignment with the conscious mind pressfield makes it clear we are not the ones doing the work we are simply taking dictation Let's begin discussing ego and the self, and let's approach the topic by first talking about life and death. Something that sometimes happens of a person that has learned that they have terminal cancer is that they experience a profound psychological shift. The potential unlived lives within them return with a power and a vengeance and a poignancy that happens when we face our mortality. It calls into question all of our assumptions. What does life mean? Have we lived it right? Are there any acts left? Any stones left unturned? Any words left unspoken? The ego is thought of as the I. we think that we are it's the conscious intelligence your everyday day-to-day brain that runs your life and thinks and plans but the ego is part of a greater entity which is the self the self includes the ego as well as elements of our unconscious when we learn that we will die soon the seat of our consciousness Pressfield says, shifts from the ego to the self. From this perspective, the world is new. And you immediately figure out what's truly important. This perspective is profound and grounded. And he says that people make the mental shift, but then they need to live it out in their lives. This reminds me of... Something I've heard of called visualizing or contemplating your own metaphorical death. The idea is to take some time alone with yourself and actually contemplate and imagine that you have died. Your life has ended. It's over. Whatever you've done so far, whatever you've lived, that's it. And taking account of your life, taking stock of your life. Then the next part of the exercise is to imagine you've been given a second chance. You've been reborn. You're back. You have no idea how long it will last. You know, it will end again, but that everything now from here on out is extra. Your life has already been lived and it's ended. This is a gift. This is bonus. How would you change your behavior in this new second life? Back to the ego and the self. Pressfield says that angels live in the self while resistance lives in the ego and that there is an ongoing battle between the two the self wants to create to evolve the ego likes things as they are the status quo the ego believes in material existence in the real-world business the important and necessary things that need to get done every day Pressfield says that deliberately altering our consciousness in any way, is an act of trying to find the self. He also says, along those lines, that when an alcoholic collapses in a gutter and he hears a voice that says, I'll save you, he says that voice comes from the self. He says the self is our deepest being and that it is incapable of falsehood. It speaks the truth, and it speaks for your future. The ego doesn't want you to evolve. It wants the status quo. It wants to remain the same. Because it's running the show, and it wants to keep running the show. So the ego produces resistance, and it attacks an awakening, evolving artist. Pressfield says that when we seat our consciousness in the self, not in the ego, That is how we defeat it. We've said in the previous two episodes, multiple times, that resistance is experienced as fear. It's fear of consequences. Fear of pursuing your calling. Fear of doing the most important work. But there is what Pressfield calls a master fear above all. And he says that the fear is so close to us that we often don't even recognize it. And that if we were told that it was our master fear, we wouldn't even believe it. What he says the master fear is, is the fear we will succeed, that we can access the power we secretly know we possess, that we can become the person that we sense we truly are. He says, this is terrifying. Because it means that we are more than we think we are and that we are capable of designing and steering our own life. And that if all of this is the case, everything changes. In order to embrace our ideals, we have to prove that we're worthy of them and live up to them. He says, we are not born with unlimited choice he says we cannot be anything we want he says we come into the world specific and with a personal destiny and that each of us has a calling to become ourselves that's the job of our life not to shape ourselves into some imagined ideal but to discover who it is that we already are and live up to that. Some of this has to do with how we define ourselves as individuals. In the animal kingdom, and which includes humans, individuals rank themselves typically either by hierarchy or by some connection to a territory. Doing this gives us psychological security we know where we stand and the world makes sense to us using hierarchy tends to be a default tends to be somewhat automatic it happens even with children and Pressfield says it's usually not until later in life after you've lived through a little bit of hardship maybe have some harder experiences gotten a little beaten up it's usually not until then that we begin to explore the territorial alternative To defining your value to defining where you stand and he says that this territorial alternative for some people it saves their lives before we get into it it's important to recognize that most of us define our value hierarchically our culture drives us to do this it wants us to value ourselves by the opinions of others this is reinforced through school advertising and through the workplace it wants us to judge our own value based on the metrics, the opinions of others. Pressfield says that specifically for the artist, defining yourself hierarchically is fatal. And that's because any individual that defines themselves by rank in a hierarchy, whether that hierarchy is a wolf pack, a pecking order, or an organization, they all do a few things. They compete against each other, they elevate their status by advancing against those higher above them and defending their position against those beneath them. They evaluate their own happiness and success and achievement by whatever their rank is. And the higher their rank, the more satisfaction they feel. and The lower the rank, the less satisfaction, and more miserable they feel. They act towards others in the hierarchy based on their rank. And they evaluate all of their actions by what its effect will be on others in the hierarchy. All of these things do not work for artists. They must operate in the alternative, which is instead of hierarchically, territorially. And operating territorially is to do the work for its own sake. In a hierarchy, you have to face outward. We even talked about this a little bit in episode two of so-called discoveries when we're talking about the effective executive another book in which we said the way that you make a significant contribution is by looking outward how can you contribute outwardly but here we're talking about artists and looking up or down a hierarchy is not what an artist needs an artist needs to look within and this is not about asking what the market is looking for this is about your true feelings, your beliefs, and interests. The artist can't be afraid that it won't sell. If a writer writes hierarchically, what they're doing is imagining what will play well in the eyes of others instead of writing about what they really want to write about. And that doesn't work. Pressfield says working territorially returns exactly what you put into it and that it's completely fair. All the energy that you put in goes perfectly into your account and that you get it dollar for dollar back. Any act of creation, he says, is territorial. And he offers a comparison of the artist or an innovator with the expecting mother, with a child within her, a new life. And that the artist and the innovator also have a potential new life within them. So to sum up, The main difference is that in hierarchy, you have to seek the good opinion of others and that in territory, you're doing the work for its own sake and essentially that you would pretty much still be doing it if you were the last person on earth. He says that the Spartan king, Leonidas, said that the supreme virtue of a warrior from which all the other virtues flowed was the contempt for death. In other words, contempt for failure. Pressfield says contempt for failure is the artist's supreme virtue as well. We said in a previous episode that the Bhagavad Gita teaches that we have the rights to our labor, but not the fruits of our labor. And that what this is really saying is to act territorially, not hierarchically. It's to act for the sake of the work, not for the potential results of the work. The job is to bring into existence that which is not yet, but will be. As we approach the conclusion of the final book of the war of art, Pressfield leaves us with a portrait of the artist, a model of the artist's world. He says, it's a world in which you acknowledge that there are higher realms of reality about which nothing can be proven. And that from these realms arise all of our lives, our work, and our art. And that this realm is somehow trying to communicate with our world. And that it contains pure potential. And that the artist is the servant of that intention. The servant of the angels. The muse. The enemy of the artist is the ego which produces resistance. The artist must be like the warrior and acquire modesty and humility over time. Even if they're flamboyant publicly, alone with the work, they are chaste and humble. They are not the sources of the creation. They are facilitators. They carry it out. They are the willing and skilled instruments. The last chapter of the book is less than a page long, and it's entitled The Artist's Life, and I'd like to read it to you. It says, Are you a born writer? Were you put on earth to be a painter? a scientist, an apostle of peace? In the end, the question can only be answered by action. Do it or don't do it. It may help to think of it this way. If you were meant to cure cancer or write a symphony or crack cold fusion and you don't do it, You not only hurt yourself, even destroy yourself, you hurt your children, you hurt me, you hurt the planet. You shame the angels who watch over you and you spite the almighty who created you and only you with your unique gifts. For the sole purpose of nudging the human race one millimeter farther along its path back to god creative work is not a selfish act or a bid for attention on the part of the actor it's a gift to the world and every being in it don't cheat us of your contribution give us what You've got. And that concludes book three, part three of three of our discussion on the war of art. Again, book three was called Beyond Resistance, the Higher Realm. I hope you've enjoyed these three episodes on the war of art. Like I mentioned in the first of these three episodes, This book is extremely important to me. I find it very relevant and very helpful throughout life as something that I can randomly pick up to get my head in the right space. I think the ideas are crucial and beneficial. If you have enjoyed these episodes, you can leave the podcast a rating of up to five stars on Apple and Spotify. You can also get in touch and find other ways to connect with the link in the show notes. You can send me an email, follow us on social, send me a DM on social. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you think. Also in the show notes, a couple links related to the content. The first of which is a link to purchase The War of Art. And the second is a link to Stephen Pressfield's website, stephenpressfield.com. There, you can find links to all of his writing, as well as some other resources. Thank you very much for listening, especially if you've listened to all three of these episodes on the War of Art. I hope that you have learned something. Bye-bye.